Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Are you or a family member living with a rare disease? It's not as uncommon as you may think. One in 10 Americans have a rare disease. There are at least 7,000 known diseases, according to the National Organization for Rare Disorders. Today, where we live, we talk to Connecticut residents with rare conditions, and we learn how the medical community is working to identify treatments and cures. Decades ago, Congress passed a law to incentivize pharmaceutical companies to develop drugs to treat rare diseases. What, if any, treatments are available today? Also, how does Connecticut stack up against other states when considering the voices of the rare disease community in policy? We talk about that coming up. You can join us, too. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on the phone is a Connecticut resident, John D'Alessandro, who has been living with osteogenesis imperfecta, a rare condition. John, welcome to our show. Uh, Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Now, I mentioned osteogenesis imperfecta. So describe this disease for us. And and when did you first learn that you had this, John? Well, to describe it in basic words, it's brittle bones disease. Uh, I really first got diagnosed when I was 40 years old, which is kind of uh, kind of on the rare side because I was not born in this country. I was born in Italy, and uh, my diagnosis was because of a fall I had, and it was just an almost a happy accident that I was diagnosed. Mm. So this was after you fell, and, and what did you break, and what did the doctor tell you when you got that diagnosis? Well, when I, when I, I, I had fractures throughout my life, but nobody attributed it to anything besides uh, me being a klutz, I think. But then one day when I was 40 years old, I had a simple trip and fall accident. And I broke my wrist, and the uh, attending physician, he, when he looked at my x-ray, he concluded that this was not a simple trip and fall accident. It looked like I was hit by a freight train. And just doing some basic investigation, just I had all of the characteristics of OI, osteogenesis imperfecta, he diagnosed me with uh, OI, and that's why I first actually learned about it. Before that, I never even heard of, heard of it. Mm. You mentioned when you were growing up, you were called a klutz. And so talk to us about your childhood. So when you fell, did you often break your bones, John? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, anytime I would 
fall, I would fracture like something, uh, my leg, my forearm, uh, even through something as simple as, like I said, a uh, tripping, which nobody even thinks about. I would fracture, I would fracture something. And, uh, back then, I don't know if there was even heard of, but up until I would say 10 years ago, it wasn't very common, the word osteogenesis imperfecta, as far as I was concerned. And growing up was kind of rough because, you know, uh, I was kind of, I would say, I won't say excluded from sports, but I kind of shied away from anything that would cause me to fracture. Mm. And that had a tremendous toll on my, uh, my self-esteem and just, just everything. I'm sorry to hear that, uh, John, when you were a child and how that impacted you. When you finally got that diagnosis at 40, how did your life change? Well, at that point, I... At that point, my my life wasn't about to change because I was set in my career. I was set in my, you know, where my life was going. But uh, as I was younger, if I had known about my condition, I think I would have uh, picked a, a, a better career, to more suited, from you know, for my lifestyle because... Uh, I I grew up in a blue-collar family, and I didn't have too many choices as far as uh, where my career is heading. But knowing what my condition was, if I had known what my condition was, I think I would have made other choices. Mm. It sounds like when you have this condition that you're dealing with chronic pain, John. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I'm constantly uh, in chronic pain, and that's just from the, you know, the the arthritis that came about from all my fractures, and just from my uh, being my bones are soft. It just causes me, you know, a lot of pain day to day. It, people ask me how how would you equate the pain that you're going through? I said, well, I equate it through having the flu and having aches and pains during that time. I, I experienced that every day. And there was a time where my doctor was prescribing uh, painkillers such as hydrocodone and, and so forth. But then when the, you know, the opioid crisis finally, you know, arose, uh, kind of scared me to the point where, you know, I just, I don't take any painkillers at all, except for over-the-counter uh, ibuprofen and like Tylenol. But even that, I'm still leery about taking. Mm. But, and that's what, you know, led me to, you know, my early retirement. Right. Because I just couldn't function anymore. 
You're hearing John D'Alessandro here on Where We Live. He's a Connecticut resident who's living with osteogenesis imperfecta, as he described it, brittle bones. Uh, we're talking about uh, a rare diseases. One in 10 Americans have a rare disease. Coming up, we'll hear from the national organization that works to advocate for people uh, with rare diseases. Uh, John, I understand um, your son inherited this uh, condition as well. We'll be talking to him in just a few minutes, but can you tell us about... Um, the treatment that that uh, you're under uh, for your condition, because there is no cure, but I understand that you have to go for infusions twice a year. Uh, yes, we do. We do go for infusions. Uh, actually, we're very, very, very fortunate to have these infusions through the Connecticut Children's Medical Center. Uh, it's kind of ironic that a 61-year-old man like myself goes through the Children's Medical Center to get my infusions. But at this point, it helps me with my chronic pain because my, you know, my bones are not growing anymore. So it, it doesn't help me in the long run. But it does help me with my pain management, you know, per se. We talk about rare diseases. Uh, Kat's calling in from Torrington. Kat, what did you want to share? Oh, hi, Lucy. Good morning. Um, I, I told your screener I might crack up because the story does not have a happy ending. Um, back in 1989, my niece was diagnosed with a, a, a autoimmune disease called Bichette's disease. That's B-E-H-C-E-T-S. Um, only about one in 100,000 people in the United States will contract this disease. It's thought to be hereditary, yet nobody in my family has it. Um, oh, let's see. She, um, she was age 16 when she had it. And, um, uh, let's see. She, like, it, it's something that will attack your organs you know, one by one, and it's you have no control over it. Um, she um, must have gone through about 20 surgeries in her life, um, removing, let's see, she had one ovary removed, and she had many feet of her intestines removed um, because they were diseased and weren't functioning. Um, she got married in her 20s, and they told her she could never get pregnant because of the um, removal of the ovary and all the other conditions that she had. Um, but miraculously, she did get pregnant, and she um, left us with um, my grandniece, Ada. Mm -hmm. um, Elizabeth passed in 2016, unfortunately, and um, due to Bichette's complications, it attacked her brain, and, um, you know, she went into a coma, and we lost her. But, um, you know, it's... it's uh, boy, I don't know. This it's a disease that's found mainly in Turkey and Asian countries. Um, uh, you know, and older males are the typical ones that that would get it. Not a sixteen-year-old female from Utah. So, um, you know, we're still missing her incredibly. But we have Ada, and Ada is so much like her mom. It's scary. <laughs> well, thank you, Kat. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your family story, and I'm sorry for your loss, but uh, so good to hear about uh, Ada's uh, uh, being in your life now. We, we appreciate you calling in today here on Where We Live.
Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Lucy. Uh, John, I'm sure you probably heard uh, our listener uh, talking yes, talking I'm sorry about to it. Hear that. Uh, you know, when I when we hear these kinds of stories, and even when you got your diagnosis, where did you turn for support, John? Because when we think about rare diseases, you know, the ability to have support and to know um, that there are others like yourself and, and, and how um, they're managing their condition. As far as the support that I, I uh, got, I got the strictly from my family, specifically my wife, which without her, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today because uh, at the time when when I first got diagnosed, she was pregnant with my son. And at that time, we did not know if he had it or not. And I didn't do enough research to find out if it was hereditary or not. I did some research on my own extended family, uh, grandmothers, grandfathers, and so forth. And I found out that nobody on both sides of my family has even ever fractured a bone, let alone multiple fractures. So, and that's one thing I don't understand if I was hereditary or not. But then go, we had some genetic testing while my wife was pregnant, and we did find out that my son had it, but we wanted to know if his condition was going to be the same as mine. You see, osteogenesis imperfecta has, I believe, four different types, Mm -hmm. and it seems that our type, my son and I, type 1, is the milder of all the forms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we could say we're very fortunate that you know, if we had to get it, we got the milder ones, but there are others out there with our condition with them very severe. Well, and, well, Christian is actually with us here on Zoom, your son, Christian D'Alessandro. Yeah. Uh, welcome to the show. Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. So you're 17 now, and we heard a little bit of your father's story. Uh, he was diagnosed when he was an adult at 40. Uh, when uh, so your your family found out uh, soon after you were born. Can you can you talk about uh, what life has been like for you so far? Well, when I was very young, I knew that I couldn't do the same things that kids could do my age, like for instance, playing football or riding their bike because you know the dangers it has. So as I went on, I started to realize that I could do more things like, for instance, music or doing clubs after school and spending time with people who don't do the same things that the kids that were around me could do, like sports. But I could also have a good time with them, too. So I understand that when... uh individuals have osteogenesis imperfecta that oftentimes surgery uh, is can become common so can you tell us you know how many surgeries you've had to have so far um at this point in my life i have had five surgeries mm-hmm. and these involved what parts of your body if you don't mind me asking were they like your like your wrist or your arm um, as your father had mentioned when he fell um yes all uh all five of those surgeries had to do with my left arm. Uh, one of them had, or two of them had to do with my elbow. 
another two had to do with my forearm and one had to do with my wrist. Mm. So what was that like to have to go through those surgeries? And I asked your father about the support that he gets and he talks uh, about his family. And so you lean on them uh, during these uh, these tougher, tougher times when you've, you've had to go undergo surgery, Christian? Of course. I I mainly use my dad as support because he went through these things and he should know better than me, you know, when he gets stressed out, when he should go into surgery or when he needs to have a cast or something. But I also turn to my mom, you know, because she was always my guiding figure and almost the person that makes me feel calm in a stressful situation. Mm-hmm. So you talked a little bit about, uh, you know, not being able to to play sports and, you know, maybe some of the the decisions that you and your family had to make in terms of, you know, attending a school um, that was better suited for you. Um, uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, at a very young age, most of my friends around me were all obsessed about, you know, being in the NFL, being a pro football player, you know, being a a really, really great linebacker, even though that I had no qualifications of doing any of that. And even if I tried, I'd be on a gurney within 30 seconds. So but as time went on, I realized that sometimes you don't need to be the professional football player and get recognized by millions for the thing that you love to do. Sometimes you could just work in an office building and build a build a business up from the ground up and have a time with that and have fun with coworkers and have fun with friends and, you know, create things. And when you at the school that you attend now, uh, you know, how do they um, accommodate the fact that you have this condition so that you don't break a bone while you're in school, but you're still able uh, to participate uh, in like physical education? Can you talk about that, Christian? Well, at my school, we have a specialized plan for myself called an IEP, and it basically helps me for, for instance, when I'm in gym and there's an activity that might not be too safe for me, I could either opt out and go to our wellness room and work out there, or I could opt into, say, a study hall and do some work there. And they're quite accommodating for my needs, and I also have access to their to the school's uh, sex, um, the physical therapist, and it, it really helps being at the school, and it, it really helps being there, you know, being helpful. So it sounds like you're in a good school environment now. Uh, John, you're still with us. Uh, when you hear your your son talk about living with this disease, uh, he, he has, uh, when you compare his childhood with yours, uh, much improvement? Oh, absolutely. No, there is absolutely no doubt. Like I said, years ago, people never even heard of osteogenesis imperfecta or, you know, the accommodations that they would have put in place because of a, a person that w- with limited, you know, mobility. And uh, now the educational system is, I can't say enough good things about it. Christian, I understand that you and your dad uh, go to uh, the Children's Medical Center to get your the infusions together. Can you can you talk about that with us? Well, usually we go in for infusions, you know, early in the morning, we're like half asleep and 
we usually recognize that's usually a, fu- a full day ordeal or at least a half day. So we usually bring in, say, you know, an iPad to watch Netflix or Hulu on, or we, you know, bring in, we ask them if we could have any snacks or, you know, see if we could get anything to eat before then. And we, it may be hard in hindsight, you know, being there all day with an IV in your arm and, you know, staying in the same spot for almost six hours, but you really get to realize how much fun you could have sitting in a seat, you know, being on your phone or being on a gaming system. Hmm. And your phone. Hey, go uh, ahead. Go ahead, John. If I could uh, interrupt, uh, the infusion center has made strides as far as like uh, accommodating or even their protocol. We when when we first started getting infusions, it would be like uh, early in the morning to late afternoon deal. But as time went on and things gotten to be a lot, lot better. And now it's gotten to the point where you could go in at a certain time and be out, let's say two to maybe three to four hours later. And uh, like my son said, they go you know, above and beyond as far as accommodating. And a lot of times we sit right across the room from each other and he has a needle in his arm and I got a needle in my arm. And we're, you know, on a time like that, we just like, we bring our, you know, iPhones or iPads and we just make the best of it, you know? Mm. So you talked a little bit about the progress, uh, John. But, you know, as the listeners are hearing from you and your son about what it's like to live with uh, this disease, you know, what advancements or improvements would you like to see from insurers or providers and and how uh, they provide care to you or even provide coverage uh, for for the treatments that can help you in your quality of life? Well, as, as far as that, I can't ask any more from, let's say, uh, uh, CCMC because they are, you know, I, I can't say enough good things about them. And as far as like research, you know, uh, just like anything else, it you have to bring awareness to it. And it's hard, and it's hard for that because in this situation, we are the minority. Uh, if you're going to spend millions on research, they're going to spend it on uh, cancer rather than, let's say, uh, a condition that I might have because more people will benefit from, you know, getting the research for cancer than a condition that my son and I have. (coughs) Excuse me. Christian, did you want to add to that uh, when people hear your story, you know, what you want our listeners to take away uh, from what you and your dad have shared and, and how to help people with, with rare diseases? Well, one thing that I, I could say to anyone who has a rare disease that may bring them down, don't let it define you. It may hurt some days, but someday you just got to let it fall behind you and focus on what you want to do and what you want to do with your life and not let it bring you down. Mm. 
Well, Christian D'Alessandro, thank you so much for joining us. I know you have to head to school, so we appreciate you taking some of your time uh, spending it with us. Uh, thank you, Christian. Of course, and it was an honor being here. <laughs> and John D'Alessandro, it sounds like you got a, a good son there. Yeah, he's, he, tell you the truth, uh, at my age and his age, he's my inspiration. Well, thank he you. truly is. Thank you, John, for your time today on the show. Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we're going to hear from the National Organization for Rare Disorders, also known as NORD. Each year, NORD puts out an annual state report card ranking states on its policies like Medicaid eligibility and out-of-pocket cost protections for people living with a rare disease. We find out how Connecticut stacks up right after this short break, and we're also going to learn how NORD advocates for people living with a rare disorder. Are you one of them? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. NORD is the National Organization for Rare Disorders. And each year, the organization puts out a report card analyzing how states address policy issues for the rare disease community. Now, Connecticut scored an A in out-of-pocket costs for prescription drugs, B in screening newborns for rare diseases, and a C in step therapy, a process by which insurers require patients to take one or more alternative medications before they can access the drug prescribed by their provider. Connecticut got a failing grade in telehealth. Now, NORD is working to create a rare disease advisory council in Connecticut to elevate the voices of residents with rare diseases in state government and policy. Joining us now on Zoom is Alicia Lawrence. She's patient services case manager for the National Organization for Rare Disorders, and Alicia is based in Danbury. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be here to talk about NORD's efforts and to tell inspiring rare disease patient stories, connect with the community and clinicians, as well as push for technical, medical, and policy advances for the fight of rare diseases. I think you summed it up there, Alicia, but tell me how often are people reaching out to you for help? And tell us a little bit about that. So in my role as a patient services case manager, I also manage the information and resource services department. 
And so we get calls, email inquiries um, daily in regards to patients looking for assistance as well as um, financial assistance, any um, things related to insurance. In the last year, we've had over 60,000 calls answered, 50,000 emails answered, and we've provided well over 305 rare caregiver respite awards. We assist patients as much as we can. Mm-hmm. We, when I talked with John D'Alessandro earlier about you know where he gets support and how you know when he talked about his condition, osteogenesis imperfecta, uh, being you know in the minority that it's not well known, and so people needing that support and needing that advocacy to help them, Alicia, uh, that can be really important for the whole family. Yes, and we do have, um, you know, general rare disease information database. In that database, it's called our rare disease database. And in that database, we have over 1,300 rare disease um, reports. And actually, um, John, Chris's uh, diagnosis is one of those um, that we do have. And at the end of the report, there are organizations as well as information about the diagnosis and for his particular diagnosis, there is a foundation called the OI Foundation um, that, you know, if, if the family wanted to, you know, reach out and see what supports or just to find others like themselves, you know, we encourage that, that patients and families do so. I understand that there are about 7,000 known rare diseases, according to Nord. We learned about one of them, osteogenesis imperfecta. What are some other, uh, I guess, common diseases uh, in for this population that you're hearing from, Alicia? Um, some of the more common rare diseases we have, and we do have patient assistant programs. I'm just thinking about the ones that we have patient assistance programs for at present is um, alpha-1, narcolepsy, uh, tardive dyskinesia, PKU um, are some of the more, I would not like, I don't like to say common because every rare disorder is uh, is rare. Right. There is not you know, um, there's more than 90% of the rare diseases lack FDA-approved treatment. And so, um, you know, for some, there are no cure. For a lot, there are no cure. Um, So it's just important to be able to provide, my role is to be able to provide as much support as possible to the patient and caregivers when they call or email in. Related to what you just shared, Alicia, uh, for people with rare conditions, finding, uh, you know, particular medication for their condition, you know, is there copay assistance where in, and they might run into where their insurance plan may cover something, but maybe not another medication because they have a rare disorder? And, and how does Nord help in that way? So we do, there are rare disorders where um, if there is a medication that may be able to treat the diagnosis, there could be a copay assistance attached. And it's based on the insurance, how much that copay would be. Um, Although we would love to be able to provide assistance to everyone that calls in, that's just not something we are able to do. And so what what I usually do is encourage patients to reach out to the insurance company to just find out, you know, if there are alternatives, 
Um, we can also, um, you know, ask them to contact the manufacturer. Sometimes the manufacturer has, you know, that, you know, assistance. Um, we, when, when we are able to help, our programs help with laboratory and diagnostic testing, physical and occupational therapy, durable medical equipment, adaptive equipment. We also, in some cases, are able to help travel to medical appointments as well. Um, well, I want to really does the depend on the particular need of the patient. Right. I wanted to fit in a call, Alicia. Arinda's calling in from Meriden. Arinda, what did you want to share with Alicia Lawrence from the National Organization for Rare Disorders? Hi, good morning, Alicia. Um, Good morning. I have a huge uh, issue with uh, my child being diagnosed with Nathurner syndrome. And it's usually diagnosed in... um, uh, women, older women, and it's my child is a sophomore in high school, and this has been going on. The pain and, and discomfort, and tons of doctors' visits, uh, scans, lab work um, since seventh grade, uh, and now we just found out last month through an MRA that um, our child has this uh, syndrome, and we really need help with um, managing uh, the pain. And trying to have uh, our child have a as normal life as possible. Uh, we we're told the only um, cure or or help for this would probably be uh, surgery. And uh, Mass General in um, Matt, well, in Massachusetts is like the only is the closest uh, hospital that would help us or could possibly help us. Mm. But there, we were told there's no medication that can help. So we're this is uh, really bothersome. Alicia, what can you tell Arinda looking for either a specialist or a treatment option for her child with this rare pelvic disorder? Again, it's May-Thurner syndrome. So um, in in your case, you know, um, I would ask, and maybe we can, I don't know if I can get your information offline or you can contact me at... um, information services at rarediseases.org. Um, but, you know, I can look into what other, you know, options might be available for you as far as um, financial assistance. So in your case, maybe we would provide resources for um, travel and lodging so that because if, if you are crossing state lines, I'm sure it's something where you might need to be able to, you know, stay there with, you know, your, your child as they recover or in the midst of the surgery. So um, there's a lot to go into it. I don't want it to take up so much time, but if you reach out to information services at rarediseases.org and just, you know, identify yourself as, you know, being on the show and me speaking with you and provide your contact information, I will certainly give you a call um, to, to discuss further. And Arinda, I'm going to put you on hold and our call screener can get your phone number to share with Alicia post-show. Okay, thank you for calling into the show. Uh, so uh, it's interesting to hear uh, from you know another resident getting a diagnosis for their child, and you know this is a, a time of, of of high concern and stress, and not knowing right. where to turn. Uh, very similar to what you hear, Alicia, from other families. Yes, and you know you know it's important that um, just from for Nord is that you know we just want 
you know, patients and families to know that we are here for you. Um, the community, we have um, supports. We we have a Living Rare, Living Strong conference, which is really geared towards patients and caregivers. And, you know, because of COVID, we haven't been able to meet in person, but usually this is a, a conference, you know, really for patient and caregivers. And it's, you know, our motto at NORD is together, our motto is alone we are rare, but together we are strong. Um, this is our motto. And, you know, rare disease families, it can be very overwhelming, um, a lot of anxiety and certainty, and especially for um, like the caller where it's a patient who is new, you know, a new diagnosis. There's a lot of anxiety that comes with that. And we're here to support in any way we can. Well, Alicia Lawrence, thank you uh, for coming on the show and for being a resource for our listeners like Orinda, uh, who are looking uh, for support um, with this new diagnosis in their family. Alicia Lawrence, again, is Patient Services Case Manager for the National Organization for Rare Disorders, also known as NORD. Alicia is based in Danbury. And uh, remind our listeners your website, again, for people to reach out. Sure. So our, our Nord, Nord's website is rarediseases.org. And there's a contact us section where if you have any inquiries or specific questions, you know, you are more than welcome to, um, you know, place it in the in our in our contact us section. Thank you, Alicia, for your time today. Thank you. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Earlier, we learned about a rare disease, osteogenesis imperfecta, or brittle bones. Coming up, we're going to hear about another rare condition and learn about a groundbreaking clinical trial at UConn to help Americans living with this disease. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from NORD, the National Organization for Rare Disorders, about how, about how it helps people with rare diseases. Uh, as Alicia Lawrence said, there's no approved treatment for 95% of rare diseases. And patients are often treated with off-label drugs or treatments not approved by the FDA for that specific disease. Now, biopharmaceutical companies are working on orphan drugs or drugs for rare diseases and have more than 800 projects in clinical development, there's a -a one-of-a-kind clinical trial at UConn for the treatment of a rare disorder known as glycogen storage disease, a disease that can be fatal. Joining us now on Zoom with more is Amber Berry, who's a registered nurse with the glycogen storage disease and disorders of hypoglycemia at Connecticut Children's and clinical trials at UConn Health. Amber, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So glycogen storage disease, can you describe this for us and what it's like for patients who've been diagnosed? Sure. Um, So basically what happens after we eat is that we, our body is fueled by, by glucose. And so we eat our glucose we use as fuel. And then what we don't need right away, we put into our liver to save for later so that if we don't eat for a period of time, we can take it out of our liver and use it to regulate our blood sugar. So the problem with glycogen storage disease is that 
once it goes into their liver, they are missing an enzyme that is responsible for helping break down the glycogen to put it back into the bloodstream and so they can use it as fuel. Um, so once it goes into their liver, it is essentially stuck and they can't get it back out, which can be very problematic because we need glucose to survive. And if they can't get it back out and their blood sugar goes too low and they don't have access to food or anything to bring it back up, it can potentially be fatal. Mm. So what is the prognosis? You mentioned it can be fatal. Uh, was this, uh, you know, prior to a few decades ago? And what are some of the treatments available today? Yeah, so um, really up until 1971, it was almost an exclusively fatal disease. Um, in the 70s, they started using continuous um, feeding. So they would put a tube in through either the nose or through the stomach um, to continuously feed patients to maintain their blood sugar, um, which helped. But there's other complications that can go along with unregulated blood sugar. Um, so in the 80s, they actually found out that cornstarch can be a treatment. So since the 80s, um, our patients have been mixing cornstarch with water and drinking that, and it has shown to be a continuous source of glucose for the body. Um, and so that really is how, how they've been getting by. And we titrate that dose uh, very carefully. So they have the exact amount of fuel that their body needs, not too much, not too little. Um, but Again, it, it can be very anxiety provoking. They have um, a risk for severe hypoglycemia. Um, so they have to monitor their blood sugar very frequently. And many of our patients have to drink this cornstarch um, every three to four hours throughout the day without missing a dose. And that happens even through the night. Um, so when they're little, their parents have to wake up and make sure they're never missing any doses and that their doses are given on time. So again, very, very high anxiety for the families, for sure. And that really impacts their quality of life. I understand you're part of a clinical trial at UConn to help people with this disease, glycogen storage disease. Can you tell us about it? Yes, it's very exciting. So we actually started a gene therapy clinical trial with Ultragenics. Um, in 2018. So we were the first center to infuse a gene therapy into, um, into a patient with glycogen storage disease. And since then, we've treated several patients. And this, this is a study that's happening throughout the world. Um, so we, for a few years, we're in the phase one, two part of the trial, which is really monitoring for safety and dosing. And we recently moved into phase three of the trial, um, which is now monitoring for efficacy and um, really what we're trying to do is make sure that, uh, that they can maintain their blood sugar without this severe risk of hypoglycemia so that, um, so that their risk of death is decreased. So tell me a little bit more about how this works. So you're taking a repaired part of the gene and, and how that's then helping their liver, Amber? Yeah. Yeah. So basically we take... Um, the part of the gene that they're missing, we put it in a viral vector. So really what happens is like um, this virus, which is a pretty benign virus, goes directly to the cells in the liver, to the nucleus. And so basically it brings the gene that they're missing um, that they need to make this enzyme that helps break down that glycogen. Um, and it puts it into the nucleus of the liver cells so that now they are able to make that enzyme. So the, the theory here is that once they're able to make the enzyme, they will then be able to release um, the glucose out of the liver to maintain their blood sugar. 
Well, that's really fascinating uh, to hear that explained to us. And I understand just this year, was it, uh, there was the, the, a patient, uh, the first in the world to receive this infusion at UConn? Yes. So the first in the world in the phase three part of the okay. trial. Um, again, we, re- we infused the first um, patient in 2018 in the very beginning, phase one, two part of the trial. But phase three just started and we did infuse the first person um, in the world at UConn Health just uh, just a couple months ago. Can I ask how that person's doing? Um, no. <laughs> you may not. <laughs> but what a what a, a groundbreaking uh, development uh, to have that at UConn. Yeah, it's really been wonderful. And I think it, you know, it offers hope for a lot of the families and, and we're treating a specific type of glycogen storage disease. There are, there are several different types that we work with uh, that affect the liver and muscles. And so we're working with glycogen storage disease type 1A. Um, and I think it just really offers a lot of hope for obviously patients who have type 1A, but really as, as a whole for the community, because glycogen storage disease is getting attention and people are caring about it, which I think is is really, really wonderful. Right. That's what John D'Alessandro told us earlier about just raising awareness about even the disease that he and his son have, uh, osteogenesis imperfecta, and how that awareness is, is so important. Can you tell us more about, are there other clinical trials underway, whether it's at UConn or what you're, the work that you're doing at, at Connecticut Children's for this particular disease? Yeah, so we do have another um, upcoming clinical trial uh, that will also be at UConn that is um, sponsored by Moderna, and it will be an mRNA um, treatment that we are investigating. Um, both of these, if, if anybody's interested, can be found and learned more about on clinicaltrials.gov, um, or people could contact the clinical trials u- unit at UConn. Um, directly for more information on both of those. Um, so again, really exciting. We have a, a couple different companies that are uh, coming in with, with different ideas for research on this disease. And at Connecticut Children's, we do have um, a program. So we do see patients with glycogen storage disease. Uh, we monitor them. We titrate their cornstarch doses and you know do frequent labs and make sure that they're doing okay. Um, so that's been, that's been pretty wonderful as well. Mm. When we think about, you know, how uh, this work is being done and the funding that's needed, can you talk about that at all? Uh, You know, where these funding sources come from and why it's so important to not uh, neglect uh, people with rare diseases, Amber? Yeah. So, you know, it is it is a lot to keep up with for sure. We we see patients every three to four months. Um, so they have frequent labs. They take cornstarch, which is obviously something that you can buy at the grocery store. It's the same thing that you thicken your gravy with. Um, and it only costs a few dollars for a container. However, they are taking large doses of cornstarch around the clock. So they go through a, a fair amount of cornstarch in a given month. And it is not often something that is covered by insurance companies since it is, uh, you know, a food product. Um, so, you know, they there are struggles with that for sure. And, um, you know, some of our patients have difficulties coming into the office because transportation issues. And um, so there's there's always a lot of hurdles, I think, to to overcome. Um, but in any community, really with any rare disease, I think community support, other people who have the same disease can be really helpful. I know with glycogen storage disease, the community is um, very supportive and active. And we do have several different foundations um, that help families who who need funding, for example. Um, so there, there seems to always be some avenues for opportunity. 
And we've been talking specifically about glycogen storage disease, but when we think about these other rare diseases that are out there um, and how uh, the research community is working uh, to help find uh, better treatments or even cures, I mean, what does the future look like, Amber, from, from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of hope. I have to say, when I first learned about glycogen storage disease, I had been a nurse for nine years and I had never heard about it before. Um, So I think now I'm fully immersed in it. So I know a lot about rare disease and other rare diseases. um, But I think the awareness has definitely increased. Um, I know there's different things happening in Connecticut about rare disease and there's rare disease day and it just helps to bring more attention to it and more awareness to it, which is something that we certainly try to do on a regular basis. and I do think that it it has an impact in the long run because it does bring attention to these diseases. And, you know, it has brought clinical trials and potential for new treatments to these diseases, which I think is really um, moving everything forward. That's Amber Berry, again, a registered nurse with the glycogen storage disease and disorders of hypoglycemia at Connecticut Children's. And she's also involved with the clinical trials at UConn Health. Amber, thank you for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Today's show was produced by Sujatha Srinivasan. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Katie Pellico was on the phones today. And our technical director is Kat Pastor. 